today. Let's open up to Luke chapter 22. Luke 22, as we now come to the the day before Jesus died. It's uh, the Passover, Supper. We see the Lord now facing death and really facing it with courage, embracing it. And there's a lot of things that we learn along the way. Because look what you read in Luke 22, beginning in verse 1. It says, Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near which is called the Passover. We read down in verse 7, Then came the day of unleavened bread, when the Passover must be killed. There might be a few different ways to divide up this section. Uh, One of the things that I thought about was the first point being uh, God's calendar, you know. Because as the Lord is about to die, we see that Luke and others, they bring up the point that on God's calendar, there's a couple of feasts that are going to be celebrated. One is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It drew near, it says in verse 1, and the other is called Passover. And so, you know, for us, we know that the day that Jesus died, we call it Good Friday. But our Gentile calendar must be understood in light of the Jewish calendar And we know in the Jewish calendar there were seven feasts. Jesus fulfills them all, we'll see. But these are really, really important things to understand. I would encourage you, when you get a chance, you read Exodus chapter 12 and you find the the real solid background to these two feasts. The Feast of Unleavened Bread um, was a feast in which the Jews for seven days were not allowed to eat any bread with leaven. It was in light of the fact that when they left Egypt, when God set them free, they were um, in a hurry. They didn't have time, you know, to cook with leaven. They didn't have time for that bread to rise. And so in light of that, they were then to celebrate seven days of unleavened bread. But then as you progress throughout the pages of Scripture, you find that leaven is a picture of sin. And so, in one sense, God is just saying, for seven days, I want no leaven. For seven days, I kind of want no sin. So what they would do, what the Jews would do, is they would literally, you know, search their houses, their homes, every nook and cranny to make sure there was no leaven in their home. And then they would enter into the seven-day celebration. Now, for us, what does that mean? Well, Jesus is about to fulfill this feast. And what it is, and there's probably different ways you can look at it, but I think the main way we need to look at it is seven is a number of completion. It's a number of perfection. And for for seven days, for, for the number of completion in your life, perfection in your life, destination in your life, Jesus Christ will make you and I without sin. We're going to see this later in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. He's made us unleavened. I mean, you might want to look at it the other way. Oh, for seven days I'm not going to sin. And, you know, that's pretty hard to do, to be honest with you. And, of course, I want to encourage you and almost beg you, you know, to have a heart that hates sin. I pray you would hate sin because sin separates you from God. Sin separates you from your spouse, your loved ones, the people that you want to serve with. And sin, although it is forgivable, 
it always has ramifications. It always has consequences. And so you can look at it from that angle if you want, but primarily the feasts are fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and he makes us without sin. Isn't that cool? I mean, because I look at some of you here, and I think, man, they are so bad. I I know them, man. And for some of you here, you might even be sitting next to your husband or your wife, and you are in sin. You're fighting on your way over here because the devil likes to divide the households, right? Or maybe you were yelling at the kids, or maybe you were, you know, upset with someone on the freeway, or whatever the case may be. You didn't really pray the way you should have prayed today. You didn't read your Bible the way you should have read your Bible and prepared your heart to come and seek the Lord with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And we have sin. But I just am so grateful that he has made us unleavened. But remember, before the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was a seven-day celebration starting from Nisan, nowadays the, the calendar is Nisan, 15th through 21st. On the 14th of Nisan, also known as the month of Abib, the first month really in the Jewish calendar, you had what was called the Feast of what? Passover. And you guys remember what that feast was all about, right? The Feast of Passover. Remember, God was setting his people free from Egypt. Remember? And he did nine plagues. He still didn't want to let the people go. So God said, I'll tell you what, this will do it. This will set you free. I will send the angel of death upon the land. And what you need to do is you need to take a Passover lamb, kill the lamb, take the blood, put it on the doorposts of your home and the lintels. It was like a cross. And when the angel of death comes to your home, if he sees the blood, he will pass over, right? And the firstborn would not be killed. And that's what we find that Jesus Christ is for us. As a matter of fact, let's go over there real quick. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And notice it says in verse 7, Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump. It's kind of like, you know, follow through, right? It says, Since you truly are unleavened, for indeed our Christ, our Passover lamb, was sacrificed for us. And you want to know something, man? That's what the Bible always does. It says, Be who you are. Be who you are. You are unleavened. And so, you know, get rid of the leaven in your life. Why? Because Christ, our Passover lamb, was sacrificed for us. You know, I pray we would know back in Luke 22, this calendar of God, and we need to know the feasts of God and celebrate them appropriately. We're going to see even more as Jesus gives us the institution of communion And you look at the calendar, not as only God involved in years, you know, the daily feast days, months, weeks, days, but even hours. Because look here at Luke 22. Notice it says in verse 7, Then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. And you go back down, look what it says in verse 14, And when the hour had come, he sat down and the twelve apostles were with him. See, it's God's calendar. 
And on our calendar, we have things going on for the year, for the month, for the week, for the day, and usually on our calendars, even for the hour. You know, when I read that there in verse 14, that the hour had come, it almost seems surreal to me. It's really, really deep, especially when you read the Bible and how many times have you read that his hour had not yet come, right? We read that in John chapter 7, verse 30, that they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. We read the same thing in John chapter 8, verse 20. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him. Why? For his hour had not yet come. But now we read here in Luke 22, verse 14, that the hour had come. It was the hour, it was the moment, it was the time when Jesus Christ would bear our sins. When Jesus Christ would experience the full wrath of God and the devil and all of our sins. It was the hour for which he had come. You know, Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 2 teaches us that there's a time to be born and a time to to die. One day our hour will come. It won't be like his hour, but his hour came. The devil would have killed him a lot sooner, but his hour had not yet come. And you know, when I read that now, it's just kind of like, wow, it opens everything up and it shows me God's calendar. Everything on God's calendar, the day, we're going to see even the hour. Jesus spoke of his death in John 12, verse 3, where he's answered and said to them, the hour has come. And I like this. The hour has come, what? That the Son of Man may be glorified. That when Jesus Christ was nailed to the cross for our sins, that that was the time really of his exaltation. That was a time of his glorification. You know, and I want to encourage you to know that that is the way of the kingdom of God. You know, if you want to to be great, and of course we know for his glory, then first, before the crown, there must be a cross. That's how Jesus redeemed us. You know, there's probably some of you here today who do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You know, maybe someone invited you to church, or, or maybe... You've been going to church, but when you really look at your life, you're not really living for the Lord. Maybe you don't really know the Lord, you know, and God's not cool with that. And so God brought you here today because he loves you. He wants to set you free of your addictions. He wants to work in your marriage. He wants to bless you as a parent. He wants to touch the hearts of your children. You see, and so what God did is he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins. And in that cross, there is freedom, there is forgiveness, there is love, there is life. That's what Jesus has done. And that's the way it is, not only for us to be saved, but I I believe it's also the way for us to be sanctified. Because, you know, Jesus died on the cross. And you know what? He calls us as Christians to do the same. To do the same. A lot of you here, you probably say this, and I know we pray this all the time. Lord, you know, be glorified. Lord, use my life for your glory. 
How many times we pray that prayer, right? But behind that prayer is a heart that will not die. And until you die to your thoughts, your words, your agenda, your dreams, your aspirations, your activities, then God will not be glorified. You see, the cross is the place where we find the crown. The cross is the place where we see the glory. And this is why you and I must take up our cross and follow Jesus. Jesus said in John 12, 3, the hour has come. Your son's going to be glorified, right? And when he was praying to his father, the same thing. He told his father there in John chapter 17, he lifted his eyes and he said, Father, the hour has come. And so the first thing, looking at Luke 22, I think it's important for us to understand God's calendar, the feast days of the unleavened bread and the Passover, what they mean, even to the very hour, knowing what God is doing. The second thing I see in this section is not just God's calendar, but the enemy's criminals, the devil's criminals. Because look what we read in verse 2. It says, And the chief priests and the scribes, they sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. The chief priests and the scribes, these were the religious leaders. These were the guys who knew the Bible inside and out. They were the experts of the law. They were the teachers of the law. And it's so sad to see that the religious leaders were the ones who wanted to kill the Christ. Something they always wanted to do. See, they did not know God. They did not fear God. They did fear man. And they didn't want to do this in front of men because they might lose their position. And so... What ends up happening is they're plotting to kill him. They want to kill him, but they just can't figure out a way to do it where somehow, some way, they'd be able to do this without upsetting the people. You know, and I think in reading this right here, we could probably just kind of, you know, move on. But let me just say this. It is a warning to all religious leaders. And it is something for us as a church to understand. You know, because I think sometimes we think because an individual is a, is a great pastor or evangelist or, or missionary or they've got some type of title, you know, or whatever in that aspect of positional leadership that they, they must know the Lord. And, and so I'll follow him. I'll follow that individual. But, but can't you see? These were the chief priests, these were the scribes, these were the experts in the law, and they did not know the Lord. And this is why I always tell you and I want to encourage you to follow Jesus Christ. You know, those guys on the television, just because they have a nice suit, a nice car, and they've got their big ministries, 40,000 people every Sunday, doesn't mean they know the Lord. Those guys that you listen to on the radio, oh, they wrote a book. Big deal. Doesn't mean they know the Lord. So be careful, you guys, not only in just understanding that a position doesn't mean that you know the Lord, but but also this, that if you do know the Lord as a leader, it doesn't mean that just because you started well and you attained to a certain place that you will finish well. 
Because many leaders, and we read it throughout the Bible, we see it through the pages of Scripture, have turned their backs on Jesus Christ. And so I think it's a lesson for us. If you're here and and you're a leader or you're a Christian in the congregation, these are lessons that we need to know. You know, because what can happen a lot of times is when a guy gets that position, that place, that power. Have you guys ever heard that saying that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely? Very true. Be so careful. It's a lesson for us. These guys were the chief priests, the scribes, the experts in the law. And Jesus told them in John chapter 5, 36, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. But these are they which testify of me. That's one set of criminals. The second person we read about, notice in verse 4 and verse 3, it says, And then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. And so he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. And so he promised and sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. It's hard to believe that the religious leaders would want to kill God, but they did. And it's almost harder to believe that one of the twelve would betray him. But that's what we find when we look at the story. Judas Iscariot was also criminal in this crime against God. We know it had been prophesied, right, in Psalm 41, verse 9, where the Bible says, Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heels against me. And that's who Judas was. He was a trusted friend. We'll see in the Passover dinner that he had the position of honor here at the left. And Jesus even gave him a gesture of honor by giving him the bread dipped in the sop. You know, what we find is that when you look at life, and I, and I just think they're, they're lessons. We can just go through maybe and just, okay, that's the story and it's information, but there's so much application for us, you guys. And if you're a leader, man, just continue to stay humble and broken and follow God with all your heart. Stay focused. And it doesn't even matter if you find yourself now. Maybe you're in this place of intimacy with God. You just can't let your guard down because, you know, over time you might end up, man, just drifting away to a place that you never thought you'd be, which is probably what ended up happening to Judas. It says right here that Satan entered him. Okay, now when Satan enters you, <laughs> you got some big time problems, huh? According to Matthew 26, 14, it took place after Mary had anointed Jesus for his burial with her costly perfume, something that upset Judas very much because he had been stealing from the money box, according to John chapter 12, verse 6. And he had his eyes on that price. And so when he saw that it was gone and how he hated this worship of Jesus, he went to the chief priest possessed by the devil. And so this obviously happened repeatedly. And let me tell you something, you guys. Do not dance with the devil. Do not negotiate with that nonsense. Whatever you do, you're not in league with Lucifer. You've got to be so careful. You know, William Barclay, I like what he said. He says, just as God is always looking for men to be his instruments, so is the devil. 
A man can be the instrument of good or evil, of God or of Satan. You see, what we find is Judas was playing games with the devil. And, and, you know, you wonder why. Why? Why? You know, more than likely, it was because he was looking for a kingdom on earth, huh? More than likely, when he really discovered that Jesus was interested in more than the things of this world and of this life right here, right now, more than likely, he said, you know what? That's not what I really want. I'm not really interested in the things beyond. And so he began to open himself up to the devil. An interesting thing is this. Again, William Barclay, it says this. It remains true that Satan could not have entered into Judas unless Judas had opened the door. There is no handle on the outside of the door of the human heart. It must be opened from within. And that's the way, if Satan entered Judas and somewhere along the line, Judas opened the door, huh? And as I mentioned earlier, you know, that's kind of the way it works. And if you don't know Christ, then if you can, visualize your heart with a door. And there's only a knob on the inside. And Jesus Christ is here right now knocking on that door in one sense. And he's saying, can I come into your life? And if you would open your heart, man, the Lord will come in and he'll do such a great work. But people can also open their hearts to the enemy, which is exactly what Judas did. To every man there openeth the highway and the low, and every man decideth the way his soul shall go. Right here we see, it's interesting, if you go down to verse 21 of this chapter, it says, Jesus says, Behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table, and truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And then they began to question among themselves, which of them it was who would do this thing. You know, I would say this. It doesn't hurt to check your heart. Maybe you're here today and you think, ah, that'll never be me. And, you know, I don't know where you guys are in your relationship with God. I know that, generally speaking, and I, don't, I know this church is a little different. You guys are a little cooler than the average church, if I could say this, you know. But generally, generally speaking, if I could just say this, the church is an apostasy. The church is lukewarm. The church is worldly. The church is in love with this world. How many people really are sold out and surrendered? How many people really are completely committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ? How many men are really loving their wives the way Christ loved the church and died for her? How many women are really submitting to their husbands as unto the Lord? How many parents are really raising their children in the ways of the Lord? And how many children are being obedient to their parents? You know, we are so caught up in this world that I would venture to say that there are many people here who are on the brinks of being a Judas. And I have to say that because I love you guys. And I know how many people fall away. And so if you can hear what I'm saying, I want to just tell you to heed the warning. I mean, the religious leaders, they wanted to kill Christ. 
Judas, who was close to Christ at one time, betrayed him. If that's the way it is, and we read it in the pages of Scripture, the Bible says this, take heed if you think you stand, lest you fall. If you don't have a plan, if you don't have a vision, if you don't have a heart to get closer to God right here, right now, from this point in your life than you've ever been, then you are in trouble. God, help us to have a heart that says, I want to draw near to God with all of my heart. Psalm 73, verse 28, it's good for me to draw near to God. And we need to have that heart, you guys. A lot of people say, well, Judas was never saved. And, you know, maybe you're right. I'm not going to argue with you on that point, you know, even though I think I'm right. Well, let's argue. No, I'm just joking. I wouldn't do that, right? You know, and who, there's a lot of good Bible teachers, and I read pretty much all my commentaries. Judas never knew the Lord. And I was just, I just trip out on that. How could Jesus pick somebody to be in his leadership, one of his 12 that he knew did not even have a relationship with God? I mean, he knew that about the religious leaders, and he would tell them that over and over again. You don't know the Father. You don't know the Father. You don't know God. If you knew the Father, you would love me. I mean, he told that to the religious leaders. You know, why would Jesus pick somebody who doesn't even have a relationship with God to be in his leadership? I don't think so. None of you here would do that, right? You wouldn't pick somebody who's a non-believer to be in leadership. Well, if you wouldn't, how much more... Jesus wouldn't. You see, there was a time when Judas knew the Lord. Judas Judas did miracles. Judas defeated the devil. Judas, you know, cast out demons. But then what happened? He drifted away. And so it's a lesson for us. I want to encourage you to know this, that if you're not drawing near to God, if you're not hungering and thirsting and passionate about this relationship with God, then chances are you're backsliding. You're backsliding. See, we look at the calendar and we see the unleavened bread. How did that happen? Well, it happened through the Passover lamb. The hour had come. Jesus was going to die. We look at the criminals and we see, first of all, there's these chief priests and scribes. We see, secondly, there's Judas. And we see, thirdly, underneath all these things, there's this one in verse 3, this individual called Satan. Jesus told the leaders who were trying to kill him in John chapter 8, verse 44, that they were of their father, the devil, who was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. You know, it's crazy when you consider that the religious leaders were of the devil. One of Jesus' apostles among the twelve, a man closest to him, was of the devil, led by the devil, and then even coming to the point of being possessed by the devil. And you know, here's the thing that when you read the Gospels, and this is what gets crazy, is that I don't think the apostles would have ever guessed it was Judas. They would have never thought this guy would ever betray Jesus. Why? Because he knew all the Christian cliches. He was an actor. He was a hypocrite. He was putting on a show. It wasn't real in his life. Satan had gone in, and Satan had done a good work. Here we see that Satan entered Judas before the Passover. Satan apparently entered Judas more than once. We read again in John 13:27 that after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. We know in John chapter 13, verse 2, that the devil put this whole thing 
into Judas' heart. You remember that time when Jesus told Peter, and we're going to read, I think we're going to read about it uh, next week. uh, uh, Peter, Satan has asked for you, and he's asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. Do you guys remember that? Okay, now what would you do if I told you guys that? Hey, Satan's after you, and he's after you that he may sift you as wheat. Not just, you know, demon number, you know, 3,632, okay? The devil, Satan is after you. What, what would you say? You'd probably fall to your knees, right? God help me, right? Peter said, oh, I'm cool. Lord, they might deny you. I'll never deny you, right? And I don't know how it works. I'm not going to say that Satan's after you except for me. No, I'm just joking. I wouldn't say that. But I will say this, that his army is after you. What is the language of Lucifer? It's lies. And that's why it's important for us to know the truth to have our armor on and stay close to Jesus. Otherwise, what's going to happen? The devil is going to whip you. He really will. That's what happened to Judas. And we see it here in this calendar of God, the criminals of the enemy. But believe it or not, what I want to focus on today is the Lord Jesus Christ. Because look what happens next. We read in verse 7. It says, Then came the day of unleavened bread, when the Passover must be killed, And he, Jesus, sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat. And so they said to him, Well, where do you want us to prepare? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house which he enters. Then you shall say to the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And then he will show you a large furnished upper room. There make ready. And so they went and found it just as he had said to them. And they prepared the Passover. I like what we read there in verse 13. They found it just as he had said to them. You know, one day when it's all said and done and you guys, you know, we're in heaven having our garden aside, the barbecue, whatever, man, our fellowship, We're going to look back and we're going to say, you know what? It was just as he had said to us. It's so cool. When you look at the Lord Jesus Christ, you see, first of all, if I could just say this, there's four words. uh, He's the boss. And so when he gives commands for his guys, Peter and John, to go prepare for the Passover, he tells them exactly what to do. He says, when you enter into the city, you're going to see a man with a jug of water on his head. Now, that would be a sight to see. That would be very different because in those days, the guys didn't carry the jug of water on their head. The girls did, right? Isn't that kind of cool, guys? <laughs> I was telling my wife about this the other day when she told me to lug the five-gallon jug in. I said, sweetheart, the girls are supposed to do that. <laughs> but, but here's this one guy. He's an exception. She's all, well, he did, so you better. And so anyways... Um, no, you know, and so they see this guy. Oh, that's the one. Obvious to see. They follow him. Imagine that. They follow him into his house. And then the Lord says, and talk to the master and tell him that, you know what? You got a room for me, right? The teacher says, that you, I, I need a room, a guest room. And sure enough, this guy showed him a beautiful upper room. And what you see is the Lord knows everything. He never fails because he knows all the details. You can trust him. You can trust him. Obey him. 
one step at a time, knowing that he knows the future. Now, from what I understand during the Passover feast, that there would be millions of people there. Um, If you live within 15 miles of Jerusalem, you were required to go to the Passover feast. And every male who was a Jew was required to go to Jerusalem and celebrate the Passover slash unleavened bread at least once in his lifetime. And so there would be millions. Josephus tells us there were three million Jews here at that time. Now, during this time, during the Passover feast, it's kind of cool. You couldn't charge. If someone was to borrow your room or whatever, it was against the law to charge them. The only thing you could charge them would be maybe the skin of the lamb. That's it. And so here's this room prepared for Jesus. And from what I understand, the rabbis would often reserve this room for times they want to spend with their disciples. Which brings us to the second B, under Christ. Not only is he boss, but he's also brother. Because look what we read next in verse 14. It says, And when the hour had come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. And then he said to them, With fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Now, for some reason, the Lord really wanted to eat this Passover with them. For some reason, in the Greek language, it's just repeated, desire, desire, fervent desire. It's emphasized in the Greek. He wanted to have this dinner with them. Now, some of you may say, well, the reason he wanted to have the dinner with them is because he was so excited about the cross. And perhaps there's truth to that because I know the heart of our Lord was to do the will of his Father. You know, but when you read about him praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, what do you read? You read him saying, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. And so I don't know if that's necessarily the reason why he wanted to eat this dinner, simply because he wanted to get it done and out of the way and go and go to the cross. I think there's more to it here. And what we find as we study his life is that during this dinner, he would share things with his disciples that are probably the deepest things that we read in the Bible. When you get a chance, you read John chapter 13 all the way through chapter 17. You see him there in the upper room and he's heading towards the garden and you know, going to the, uh, the garden of Gethsemane. These are things that he tells his disciples that are the deep things that during this supper he would share with them that, you know, he was always sharing only what the father wanted to share. Now it's time to share these things, you know. I mean, I don't know how you guys are, but let me just ask you a question. Do you like eating dinner with your family? You know, when all your family's there. I'm like that, man. How many of you here, when, you have, when you're eating dinner, you have the television on? Because that's a sin. Okay, that's a sin, man. <laughs> Turn that television off, man, and you and your wife and your husband and your kids, you talk. 
And you talk about the things of the Lord, you know. And I'll even, sometimes I'll tell my children and I'll tell my daughter, you know what, save your appetite. I'll be home at 6.30 and I want to eat dinner with my family. Because there's something about that, huh? Having that, that time that's so special and you can share what happened that day and, and just kind of like see how everybody's doing. I mean, this is a really neat time of having dinner together fellowship and I'll take a drink and then you you take a drink and Aaron won't take a drink but you know <laughs> we try our best to have this fellowship when you get a chance okay here's the thing okay during this time the Lord spoke the deepest things right some amazing things and you want to know what you really read about when you read in John chapter 13 through John chapter 17 13 14 15 16 you want to know what you read about you read about love You read about love. You read a lot about love. You read a lot about the power of the Holy Spirit that would come. You read about how the world will hate you, but that's okay because they hated him. I mean, you read during that time things that are so important. And, you know, I think that the Lord right here was looking forward to this dinner because of the things that he would share with them. And again, I know I referred to this scripture earlier, but really it pertains to the church. And if I could, I could just say this to you guys, that the Lord wants to have dinner with you too. Okay, Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, Jesus said to who? The church. He says, can we have dinner together? Right? Can we have dinner together? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Right? And if you open to him... What does he say? I will do what? I will sup with you. You see, that's our brother. That's our Lord. That's the fellowship that he wants to have. This is the Christ. He's the boss. He's the brother. And he brings his body. That's the third thing. Notice what happens. It says in verse 19, And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now the Lord institutes communion. During Passover, there's actually four cups. Um, Luke mentions two. Matthew and Mark only mention one. But now he comes to this cup of the institution of communion. And he tells them this, that this is symbolic. This, this body, is, this bread is symbolic of my body that would be nailed to the cross for you. And what that is, is God expressing his love. Jesus now institutes a new meal, which is not only a memorial of his death, but it's also a fellowship meal of unity. It's a proclamation and a symbol of the believer's anticipation of Jesus' return when all God's promises will be fulfilled. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5, it says, Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. And, you know, and again, I want to make sure that the emphasis is on the Lord. But I also want to bring as much application as possible. And I can't help but think of Romans chapter 12, and where it just says we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, right? Holy and acceptable to God, which is our reasonable service. And so your eyes, be careful, little eyes, what you see, right? And your ears, be careful, little ears, what you hear. And those hands, be careful, little hands, what you do. And little feet, where you go. 
There may be some of you here today that are involved in sexual sin. That's what you're doing with the body that God's given to you. Some of you here are involved in pornography. That's what you're doing with the eyes that God's given you or the the hands, man. And some of you here maybe are drinking and doing drugs and so many things that we are not consecrating our body. You know, to show the love of God, we need to present our bodies, man, from head to toe to the deepest recesses of our heart as a living sacrifice to him. He gave his body, and then, more importantly, it says right here, he gave his blood. In verse 20, likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. And that's the cool thing, man. We see the calendar of God. We see the criminals and the enemy. But we also see the Christ. And he is here as our boss, as our brother, giving his body and giving his blood. So that here we are, you guys. Think about it. And we as Christians have entered into a covenant relationship with God. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse one, uh, 31. It says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. You see, there's this new covenant that Jesus established. Quoted in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 8, and explained in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24, speaking of Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks of better things than that of Abel. You see, you know, you guys, we have a covenant with God, and I think that sometimes we forget about that, you know, what we've entered into. You know, how many of you here, you know, you understand the whole way it works? Let's just say you buy a house or you buy a car or whatever it is. You buy something from Randa Center. I don't know what it is, right? And they say, I'll give you this if you give me that, right? I'll give you this if you make your payments, right? But what happens if you don't make your payments? You lose it, right? They repossess your car, your house, or your big screen TV, whatever it is that you bought, right? And in one sense, not exactly, but in one sense, the heart of the Old Testament was kind of like that. God says, you know what? You know, I'll, I'll give you this if you behave. It's kind of like the way it worked, and you had to go to the temple and offer the sacrifices, and it, it, was a, it was a really rough place to be. Of course, it was still undermined by faith, but that was really the heart of the Old Testament, The new covenant is this, you guys. God says this. I'll give you everything. I will give you everything. Here's the deal that God wants to give to you. I'll give you everything. Heaven and kind of like a heaven on earth. Everything that's good and will satisfy you if you believe. Now, if you really believe, you're going to behave, right? Isn't that the way it works? But it starts with there. You see, the Old Testament was kind of like a covenant of law. The new covenant that you and I are under is a covenant of love. The Old Testament was based on our works, but the new is on his. The Old Testament had a covenant based on the blood of animals, but the new covenant is the blood based of the Almighty. The Old Covenant had a covenant with a passing priest, but the new covenant has an eternal priest and priesthood. And what we find is that the new covenant is based on his unfailing grace. And the old covenant, unfortunately, was based on my failing goodness. And as a result of this body 
and this blood that were given to us, you and I are clean and covered in this covenant of Jesus Christ. And so my encouragement to you is to make sure that you have entered into that new covenant. Because on that day of God's cosmic calendar, the criminals committed not just the crime of the century, but the crime of eternity. We're going to see as we go through our study that they killed Jesus Christ. But here's the thing, that God took that cross and he gave them their freedom, but he took it and he turned it around for good, right? What the devil intended for evil, God used for good. And I pray that you and I would never forget, and I really want to emphasize this, because I know that my life, you know, now I find myself having come back from Cambodia, having been a Christian for I can't even remember how many years now. It doesn't even matter, man. I've been a Christian for a long time. But never before have I had a desire and a hunger and a passion to know my God and enter into a deeper relationship with him and to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with this world that is dying And I know that what it is that's just kind of ignited and what it is that God is just, you know, trying to wake me up with is this cross. It really has been like an opening of my eyes to the cross of Jesus Christ where all my sins are washed away, where God showed me not only how to live, you know, in heaven, but how to live on earth. And what we find ourselves now as we're studying the Gospel of Luke is you and I, we're beginning to get there, man. We're beginning to go there. We're going to enter into this holy place. And, And we know this, man, that when Jesus died on the cross, that it's his blood, right? It's his blood that washes away all my sins. Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, it says, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, it says this, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, right? Acts chapter 20, verse 28, the Bible says that God purchased the church with his own blood. I pray that you and I would know who we are, that we're unleavened. That's what he's done for us. And so we need to go out and we need to be who God made us to be. And Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for your word, your love, your grace in our life. Father, I just thank you for the Passover. Thank you for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Thank you for the warnings I see in the chief priests, the scribes, Judas, and even of Satan. And thank you so much, Jesus, for who you are. You're my boss big time. You're my brother who would even want to fellowship with me. And Jesus, you are the one who gave your body and gave your blood to set me free. Lord, I pray that we would know what your word teaches. And Lord, we would go out and we would live in light of all these truths. And Father, I pray if there is anyone here today who doesn't know you, Lord, that today would be the day of salvation, that today they would surrender to you. And if you're here today and you don't know Christ as Lord and Savior, And you want him. You want forgiveness. You want to know for sure that when you die, you'll go to heaven. I just want to give you that opportunity. 
And if you want the Lord, maybe somebody invited you here. I don't know how you ended up here. Maybe you've been going to church for a long time, but maybe for the first time in your life, you realize, you know what? I don't, I don't really know the Lord, I, and I want to. I want to know the Lord. I want freedom. I want forgiveness. All it is is a prayer. It's a prayer that you say, you repent of your sins, willing to let them go. And right here, right now, it's not a religion, it's a relationship. Right here, right now, through prayer, you turn to Jesus and you ask him to come into your heart. And so if you want to do that, right where you're at, I just want you to say this prayer. And you say it from your heart and you mean it. Say, Dear Lord, I come to you today and I admit I have sinned. But I turn from my sin, and today I trust in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and help me to live life as a Christian. From this day forward, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.